You're listening to This Is Personal, Rewinding a Life with Dan Simon. Because it was killing me. Honestly, I don't mean that lightly. It was killing me. I was very depressed and I was suicidal. And all of my limiting beliefs and all of these labels that I had put upon me and that I'd put upon myself and all of these things that I thought about myself were creating a very, very dark place in my life. And I needed to dig myself out. Needed things to go my way. Everything had to be in order. Things needed to be perfect. Like, are you getting yeah. anxiety just listening to that? I mean, cause I get anxiety when I think about it because that, and I lived every day like that because I felt like my entire life was out of control and I needed to somehow rein it all in. And you can't, you can't. And to be the light for other people, because I, I so much needed that when I was going through a hard time that I want to be that for other people. I'm very community and connection is very important to me. How I connect with my family and my friends and my community of people on social media. That's all super important to me to be able to have that human connection with other people. It, I don't, re I, I honestly don't regret anything that's happened to me because it's made me who I am today. All of the struggles that I've been through have made me stronger and made me who I am. And it's given me the drive and the perseverance, but it's just been recently in these past couple of years that I've been able to reshift it where it's not controlling my life, where I'm using it as an advantage in my life. But it all starts with you. You have to be the one to want to do the work and like to be able to look yourself in the mirror and face yourself. I think the hardest person to face is yourself because <laughs> that's where, that's where all of the hurt and the ego and the fears come in. And as soon as you start unpacking it and peeling away those layers, it's so much beauty can evolve out of it. And so the, life is just going to keep presenting you the same problems just in a different package until you figure out your shit and how to, how to work it out, you know? Like, so I felt like all of these things were just being represented to me just in a different way until I could finally say, all right, Sheila, let's look inward here. And the common denominator and everything is, is me. So what do I need to change? Welcome to This Is Personal, Rewinding a Life, a podcast about people's personal journeys of discovery and recreation. I'm Dan Simon. We dig deep to understand the essence of each guest. How did they get to this point in their life? We all have stories to tell about our own lives that help the rest of us realize who we are and what we could become. As a life coach, I've always been intrigued by the stories people tell. What were the trials, tragedies, and triumphs they encountered while navigating through life? There are no mistakes in life, only experiences and lots of contrast. If we can have compassion for others, can't we have the same for ourselves? That's always been my personal mission, to remind people the truth of who they are, to remind them that they've done their very best. In each episode, that's what you'll find, a beautiful soul doing their best to create a life that's fulfilling and rewarding. Today's guest has had an exceptionally bumpy journey of transformation. The show runs a bit longer than normal because she just had such great content to cover talking about her life. 
Her father was an abusive alcoholic and she escaped from that toxic environment the second she turned 18. But we have a really good understanding of what never having a voice growing up can do to a person, always being told that you don't have any worth, uh, how challenging that can be to uh, emerge from. But emerge she did after a ending a 15-year marriage. Uh, she realized that now was the time to begin actually working on herself and giving herself what she really needed. She began a one-year challenge First, to face and overcome her 12 biggest fears one month at a time. And you can read all about each challenge on her blog, Breaking Up With Your Comfort Zone. That'll give you all the detail we were not able to cover on the podcast. She's also the host of her own new podcast called Courage Over Comfort, interviewing others that have faced their biggest fears and telling us how they did it. Be sure to check that out as well. Welcome to the show. Sheila Dare. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I first learned about you when I saw your breaking up with your comfort zones. So I've got to oh, ask right. you, I've got to ask <laughs> you about the experiment you did where you had, you identified 12 different fears or challenges and uh, dedicated one month to conquering each one of those. So before we get into maybe some of the specific details about that, what prompted you to undertake that kind of a challenge? That's a great question. And one that doesn't have a very short answer, so I'll try to make it as simple as possible. <laughs> I, I'm currently a full-time student at California State University Fullerton. I'm studying communications and in one of my classes, our project was to create a blog and we had to have at least nine entries to get a specific grade. We had to create the website, we had to choose a topic and post to our blog. And I had never even created a website before, so that was a challenge in itself. And that, and that took me days to figure out and trying to understand this assignment. And I thought, holy heck, if I'm gonna go through all this work to create a blog, I am going to make it way more useful than just nine entries to get a good grade. So I thought about what do I want to do? Where am I in my life at that point? And how can I make this blog impactful and personal to me outside of the classroom? So I decided that I wanted to start tackling areas in my life that needed some work because I had just come off, um, I had just come off a divorce. I was married for 15 years and I was trying to discover, rediscover who I was at that time in my life and just what direction I wanted to go in my life. So I personally had a lot of turmoil swirling around in me at that time. So this assignment just seemed like the perfect opportunity to dive deeper into how I can improve myself personally. So I started looking at different areas in my life where I was struggling and not just struggling um, currently at that moment, but had been struggling with for years and some of them quite often my entire life. So I decided to make a list of all of the areas in my life that I was struggling in and just start tackling them head on one month at a time. So I started doing monthly challenges. So I would take one area in my life where I was struggling. I really do some soul searching and identify why this was a problem for me. And once I could identify the stem of the problem, I could then look at how I could correct it or improve it. And then I spent 30 days working on that one thing. And then at so, the end of the month. 
So let me ask you this, Sheila, were you, had you always been this introspective uh, about your life or was it the divorce that prompted you to really re-examine things? Uh, yeah, I was not introspective at, really at all ever. And it was, I, I guess you could say it was the divorce because when you, when you, well, I'm only going to speak from my experience. When I got married, I planned to be married forever. Divorce wasn't an option. I didn't even see that as something that would even happen down the line. I figured we were married. This is what we promised to each other and we were going to work through it. And we were just going to, this, this was it. And when that marriage ended, I, I had no idea who I was or what direction my life was going to go. And I was really, honestly, I was really scared. And yeah. And that was the same time that I started to just think like, I don't, I don't want to live like this. Who am I? Where am I going? What does my future look like? Because everything, my whole identity was wrapped up in that marriage. And when that wasn't, when that didn't exist anymore, I was in a crisis mode for sure. Yeah. So at the end of each month, then I would evaluate my experience and journal about it. So my blog was basically just kind of my personal journal being put out there for anyone who wanted to read it to either relate to or let it inspire them to try to do something too. But it was primarily just a, an online journal for me to document my year-long discovery journey. Interesting. So let's take a step a little bit back in time and let's rewind a little bit. If you could describe who you are to somebody that's a stranger you've never met in six sentences, what would those six sentences be? Ooh, who I am today? Is that the question? Who I am as Sheila Dare right now in this moment? Yes. I, I am a learner of life. I guess that would be the number one way I would describe myself. I'm constantly seeking to understand myself and the people around me better and to be the light for other people because I, I so much needed that when I was going through a hard time that I want to be that for other people. I'm very community and connection is very important to me, how I connect with my family and my friends and my community of people on social media. That's all super important to me to be able to have that human connection with other people and to let my heart lead me to where I need to go. I don't have all the answers, but I feel like life unfolds in the order that it's supposed to for your timing of your life. And right now I just strive to be the best me possible every day. Is that six? <laughs> uh, and I'm a mom. I'm going to just say that. I'm going to plug how much I love being a mom. I have a 23-year-old son and he is the light of my life. And he's brought me the greatest joy ever. So there, there's another sentence for you. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your uh, upbringing. What happened early in life? Yeah, I, I have uh, one older sister. So it was just she and I growing up in our household with my mom and dad. We were the typical nuclear family. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad worked outside the home. And... We had a lot of trauma and turmoil in our life growing up. My parents were married very young. They were actually in high school when they got married. 
because my mother was expecting my sister. And okay. back in back in those days when you were expecting a baby, the expectation in a Catholic family, which my mom and dad were raised in, was that you get married. So they were married. They might not have been the perfect match, but that didn't matter. Baby was on the way and they got married and they were very young parents. And then four years later, I came along. But during that time, I, they they had no idea how to be a parent. They didn't know what they were doing. My father started drinking heavily with these new responsibilities of being a dad at 18 and having to go into the workforce and be a man. Um, he, he, you know, he became an alcoholic and, and, you know, later on in life, I've discovered that alcoholism ran in my family. His dad was an alcoholic. Um, so I mean, I learned a lot about my parents when I became an adult and was able to understand them from a different perspective, but growing up, we, our house was in constant turmoil. My dad was very verbally abusive, um, physically abusive. He our house was always unstable living in a house with an alcoholic. You never knew what version of your dad you were going to get from day to day. And, you know, there was, we, I never had a voice growing up. We were taught to be quiet. Don't make waves, do what daddy says. And, and my mom was just very passive and was the peacekeeper. So she was always the one to tell us, you know, be quiet. Don't do this. Don't make him mad. And we had, you know, we had no voice growing wow. up. Wow. And he was abusive to your mother and to, to the kids, to you and your sister? You know, honestly, it wasn't until about a month ago that I realized that she was in the same fear and turmoil that we were in growing up. You don't see your parents as people when they're, when you're young, right. you don't see, you don't see mom and dad as people. You see them as this idealistic mom and dad role. And as I've become an adult, I've been able to really reflect on what my mother must have been going through as well. If we were being verbally abused and, and scared all the time, of course she was too. Of course. I look back on childhood memories now through different lenses and I could see how she was being affected that I never realized before. My parents are both deceased. So these are things that I'm realizing without actually being able to process with them. But you know, so you never had the opportunity to, to really process it through, especially with your with your dad before he passed. No, no, there was no there was no closure with my dad when he passed. There was uh, we were very estranged. I tried to stay away from him as much as possible once I moved out of the house because he had such that negative hold over me. And you know, when I would go back and visit my parents as an adult, as soon as I'd walk into that house, I'd feel five years old again. I would always be yeah. transported into that childlike state when I was around my parents and it was so unnerving. So as an adult, especially when I became a mother, I tried very much to distance myself from, from them in that situation. Yeah. You know, it's so, it's so fascinating to, to really look at what the influences are and, you know, everybody's had has growing up has, these influences or inherent stories about how you're supposed to be, but um, that they have to be, you know, kind of reworked and you have to rewrite the story. But when you have that kind of trauma, uh, that kind of intensity involved with it, it's, uh, it's fascinating in terms of how people, how people deal with it, because it's not something that, 
that you can you can logically understand it and you can say that your parents did the best they knew how to do but uh, you're still stuck with a message what if you had to summarize Sheila the message uh, let's say when you were 18 years old whenever you left the, the household what was the message you got about who you were what kind of person you were from your upbringing oh gosh that 18 year old girl who had her car already packed waiting for her birthday to hit so that she can get the hell out of that house was unworthy, unlovable, stupid, um, didn't have, didn't understand what her value was in the world because she was constantly told that she was worthless and that she was stupid. And I just knew that what I needed to do was make money if I wanted to survive. So I didn't go to college after high school. I, I didn't have any friends. I, like, I was so isolated because I had no self-worth. All I knew was that I needed to get a job and make money so that I could get the heck out of my parents' house. And I was, I, I was so um, at a, such a low point in, in my life at 18. And, and that carried on for years. Because, you know, like you just said, the messages that we're receiving when we're young, we don't understand how to process that. We take it all at face value. When we're those, those years, those zero to seven or age one to six, I mean, those are our programming years. Those are the years that right. we, our minds are in this theta brainwave state where we're just accepting everything that's given to us as fact. And whether it's right or wrong or true or not, the influential people in our lives, which are our parents and our teachers, and those people are giving us those messages about who we are as people, and we accept it. And when you're little and your parents or, or your a parent or a caregiver is telling you that you're stupid, you're not going to amount to anything, you're worthless, and basically, why are you even on this planet? That's ingrained in you for the rest of your life until you can understand how to rewire that message. Were there any uh, role models or images, teachers or anybody different that gave you any kind of a sense of your worth while you were growing up? My sister, my older sister, thank God for her. She was, she looked out for me. I always joke with her that we grew up in two different houses because we were treated so differently. She, because we, because we behaved differently. I was the one that always questioned and pushed back and said, no, this isn't right. And then I got, you know, I was always the one in trouble where she was the one because she was older and wiser. She was always the one that looked out for me and protected me and made sure that I was okay. And, and when I turned 18 and left home, I moved in with her and her roommates. And so she's always kind of been the one to tell me no, you're better than that. This is what you can do. She always saw the potential in me that I didn't see. And if it wasn't for her, I honestly don't know where I would be today because she's still to this day, my best friend. She lives right down the street from me and I can reach out to her and talk with her anytime I need to. And she's been my lifeline my entire life. Wow. And how did growing up in that family affect her? Oh, it's so interesting because as she and I have gotten older, we start to realize we have similar traits that have only happened because of our upbringing, like the need for control and <laughs> the need to raise our children so drastically different than we were raised to make sure that they 
grew up feeling loved like we never did. And there's so many similarities in our lives that are direct reflection of how we grew up. But it's, I don't, re- I, I honestly don't regret anything that's happened to me because it's made me who I am today. All of the struggles that I've been through have made me stronger and made me who I am. And it's given me the drive and the perseverance, but it's just been recently in these past couple of years that I've been able to reshift it where it's not controlling my life, where I'm using it as an advantage in my life. Well, good for you. And there's a lot of layers of the onion to peel, aren't there? Definitely. Because, you know, it's certainly what I found in my life and in the people that I work with is that it's one thing to have a logical understanding, but to deal with the uh, emotional wounds and the healing uh, is a whole different matter and can take, it does take a long, long time of work and effort uh, to, uh, to move forward. And it's not a snap your fingers, it's all healed. It's one thing and another and another and another. Which is, yeah, right. Which uh, is you, said that, you said that perfectly. Yeah, well, it's uh, which is why I'm so intrigued about your, your one-year challenge that we'll, we'll get to because uh, it's those, those actions to face fears that have an impact that you don't even, uh, you may not even be aware of at the time, but over over time you keep making these efforts to face these things and uh, and you change but it's always hard to see the label of the jar you're in <sighs> exactly and it is a lifestyle change when you start to when you start to make one little change it leads to another and it leads to another and then before you know it you're on this journey and you a couple years down the line you're a completely different person but it all starts with you you have to be the one to want to do the work and like to be able to look yourself in the mirror and face yourself i think the hardest person to face is yourself because <laughs> that's where that's where all of the hurt and the ego and the fears come in and as soon as you start unpacking it and peeling away those layers it's so much beauty can evolve out of it absolutely and the other thing i will commend you on sheila is that none of that work can be done if you have anger and resentment and the fact that you express the idea that that uh, that all the things that happened to you were, you can't change any of them. That that's what happened. And in fact, I, it's my belief that on a higher level that they're all supposed to happen. That we were supposed to have these experiences to become the person that that we are now. And it's if you want to have everything easy and everything work out perfectly with perfect parents and a perfect lifestyle, you're on the wrong planet. It just yeah, because. But per- perfection doesn't exist. <laughs> no, but 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 kudos to you in terms of having the maturity to understand that. Uh, while at the same time, you can be sad and you can feel the emotional pain of the things that happened to you, and you can have compassion for that child that went through that. And at the same time, not be anger and resentful that that shouldn't have happened to you or you shouldn't have been wrong because um, we, we, we got what, we, what we've got and, and you can't move forward if you're always looking backwards, right? Exactly, exactly. I have a picture of myself when I was five years old, my kindergarten picture. I actually dug it out of a box of old photos 
couple months ago and I have it on my bedroom mirror. And every morning when I start my day, I look at her and I say, I got you. I got you today. Don't worry. We're going to be good. It's going to be a good day. Wow. And I talk to, talk to that little girl every day when I wake up. Yeah, that is important. That is really cool. So 18, you left the house. Uh, tell us some of the things that transpired between then and when you, uh, when you got married and, and how all that progressed. Yeah, well, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I worked, I worked hard <laughs> to make money. I, I wanted to make sure that I could be self-sufficient and support myself so that I didn't have to go back to my parents' house. Because when I was, uh, when I was a young adult, a lot of my friends would tell me, why are you working so hard? Just go move back with your parents. And they obviously didn't know my history or my story because that was not an option for me. But yeah. it was e so easy for them to say, oh, just go back and live with your parents. No. So I made sure that I could always support myself. And then became a mom really young. I was 23 when I had my son and just blissfully happy, but str struggling. Um, and I, when I became a mom, it's when I really realized, like I'd mentioned that I, I wanted different for my child. How was I going to raise him differently from how I grew up? And first step was to not bring him in that environment. So I used to, I told my parents, I'm like, look, I had to grow up. I didn't have a choice in growing up in this house, but I do have a choice with whether or not I bring my son into this environment and I'm not going to. And so for a long time, I didn't, my, my son really wasn't part of my dad's life because he was so chaotic and just, he was just a mess and I didn't want that around my son. Sure. So yeah, I was um, single mom and crushing it and working and like, you know, I was at that point just kind of loving life. But, you know, of course, all those old issues were still underlying and residing in me. Um, but then I met my ex-husband, and I feel like he, um, at that time in my life, kind of, kind of saved me. Because when I met him, my mother was in hospice, and I knew that she, was, um, she wasn't going to live much longer. And my mm. I loved my mom dearly and I was so sad to be losing her. And it was at that same time that I met my, my ex-husband. And so a lot in my life was going on at once. A lot of change was happening. I got married, moved into his home. Um, we blended our families together and then I lost my mother. And then a year later I lost my father. So, so much in a very short span of time right then where I was, really then just relying on my new spouse to be everything to me. And I was, and I still wasn't healed. I was grieving my parents and I was still kind of a mess from everything in my childhood. And it just, it was a perfect storm, really. I, it didn't surprise me that my husband and I didn't survive the marriage. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't work out, <laughs> but. So you, just were, so, you, were in, you were in your twenties when you lost I your was, parents and you got married? Yeah. I was in my 20s, yep, and it was all, gosh, Daniel, it was all at the same time, which was just really hard. I lost both my parents and got married, so there was joy and sadness all at the same time, and I, I it was just a lot to handle, still being, and, and adjusting into that role of wife, because when I got married, I was able to become a stay-at-home mom, which is 
really what I always wanted to do just to focus on my family, kind of like my mom did. I was just repeating the patterns of my mom, wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, wanted to raise the kids, ended up marrying an alcoholic. And at the time I didn't know, he and I didn't know each other very long before we got married. And a lot of stuff came out through our marriage that he had, he had a substance abuse problem. He drank very heavily. He was, you know, there was a lot of issues in my marriage that were very, very similar to my mom and dad. And I was just reliving patterns because I didn't know how to heal them. And so life is just going to keep presenting you the same problems just in a different package until you figure out your shit and how to, how to work it out. You know, like, so I felt like all of these things were just being represented to me just in a different way until I could finally say, all right, Sheila, let's look inward here. And the common denominator and everything is, is me. So what do I need to change? So, so when is it that you had the realization that in the marriage that, that, uh, that, that you needed to work on changing? what you what you manifested and not to say that there wasn't value in the relationship and it wasn't beneficial at the time and every relationship has a has meaning and has value whether it lasts you know two weeks or 20 years or 50 years there's still value there right yeah of course of course i um i realized year four into the marriage that we were not a good fit and that we were trying so hard to make it work and we just we just shouldn't have been together yet we stayed married for 15 years and it wasn't until the last couple years of our marriage where we sought outside help and we started seeing a counselor and the counselor did a really good job of helping us understand who we were as people he wanted us to see who we were to each other as people right and and in the hopes that if we understood each other better that it would unite us but what it ended up doing was making us realize that we didn't like each other very much and that we weren't meant to be in this relationship. But aside from doing the counseling sessions together, our counselor would see us individually as well. And I was even still at that point was very stubborn with not wanting to look at my own life. I just wanted to fix the relationship. I kept thinking if he would be different, I would be different. If he would do X, Y, Z, then I would have all of these great things. And I was so resistant to looking at myself in those individual sessions. And I, I just wanted, I just wanted to fix him. (laughs) I didn't want to look at me. And so honestly, we spent the whole time that we were married with me pushing back and not wanting to look at my own issues. And it wasn't until the marriage ended when I decided that I was tired enough of my own bullshit that I needed to start working on myself. I don't know how many people in their 20s don't do the exact same thing. I certainly did it uh, as, as well. If you think you can change the other person and fix them, and uh, that's probably less than most, most all of us have to learn <laughs> the, the hard way. Mm-hmm. We don't learn it the easy way. Yeah, if you think about how hard, how hard it is to just change yourself, who makes us think that we're going to be able to change someone else? <laughs> Come on. Like, not going to really? No. And I think when my marriage ended, I just wanted to make sure that I didn't carry all of this baggage into my next relationship. I didn't want to just keep repeating the cycle over and over again. 
did it did it end in a somewhat positive way was it uh you both agreed to to go in your separate ways or was there bitterness involved we did a collaborative divorce so we agreed on the terms together we worked it out together and then hired an attorney just to do the final paperwork based on our agreement so we were able to get along in that aspect where it didn't get drawn out into a long legal battle in the courts. We just wanted to be done. We were both just so done after 15 years of, of bad so no, feelings and yeah. yeah. So nobody emotionally was essentially blaming the other one that you were at least able to walk out with, with uh, some, uh, how would you put it, at least some lack of resentment and say, okay, we tried the best and, now it's time to move on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm proud of us that we were able to do that. Now I, and, and for me, everything that I've been working on since then, for me, I feel, uh, I, I'm not one to ex-husband bash. When, when me and my girlfriends get together, if the conversation turns to ex-husbands, I just want to pay my check and leave. I don't want to go there. I don't, I, I own my own stuff. He played his role in the demise of our marriage and I played my role in the de demise of our marriage. And I don't want to, I don't want to blame him for my actions. The only person I could look at is me in this moment. So I am in such a healthier place right now to be able to look back and take all the lessons from the marriage and move forward. Um, however, Unfortunately, I don't think my ex-husband is at that place because I hear things from friends and family and it, it saddens me that he has such a bitterness towards me, but um, I, I can't do anything about that. Uh, what's really, you know, you, you didn't have children together, but that's really who suffers uh, when two people have that bitterness and angry, uh, anger against each other when they separate. The children are usually the ones that suffer the most. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I feel grateful that our children are grown. Um, he has two children. I had one child. He um, I, Shortly after we got married, he adopted my son and accepts him fully as his own flesh and blood. And he still does to this day, which is just really beautiful. But I'm glad that our children are grown so that th there's no back and forth there's no shared custody like we don't have to yeah we don't have to try to co-parent it's it's actually made it a lot easier for us so let's talk about uh your one-year challenge and um let me go through the list for our, our uh, for our our listeners and then I'd like you to pick which were the most uh, daunting and most challenging for you maybe we'll, we'll <laughs> talk about those okay. uh, you, you started with uh, a 30 day September was 30 day shopping diet October was learning to swim November was visit a new place every day December was a month of sobriety January was public speaking February was meeting new people March was learning to dance April was CrossFit getting yourself into shape at a higher level uh, May was being vulnerable and accepting no. June was personal finances. July was embracing imperfection. And August was letting go of control. 
Which was the most difficult for you? Oh, gosh. Um, learning to swim and being vulnerable and accepting no and letting go of control. I think those were the top three that were most difficult for me. Let's talk about the uh, swimming first. Sure. Yeah. So I, I didn't realize this, but there are a lot of adults who don't know how to swim. But of course, when you don't know how to swim, you feel like you're the only one. <laughs> so it yeah. was always really embarrassing for me growing up that I didn't know how to swim. But the reason that I never learned to swim was because when I was very young, my father's idea of teaching me how to swim was to throw me in the deep end of the pool wow. and let me fit and to let me, oh gosh. So there was quite a bit of trauma around swimming and being in the water because my mother also didn't know how to swim. So I remember mm. that day where we were at the pool and he said, you're going to learn. And, and I, looking back now, I'm, I'm, I'm positive he was drunk because we were at, um, we were at a home, a private home that we had rented for a vacation and it had a pool. And so my dad's, you know, recreational activity was to drink. So I guarantee you that he had a few beers before doing this, but he's picked me up and he said, you're going to learn how to swim today. And I remember being terrified because I was just always scared around my dad in general. And that I pretty much knew that he was going to throw me in the pool and I was crying and I was pulling back and I was like trying to stay on the ground. And, and he said, stop crying. You're going to learn to swim. And he threw me in the pool. And oh. of course I, was sucked in a bunch of water. I couldn't breathe. I was drowning. Like, I don't know. I mean, I was think I was six or seven. And I just remember oh my, my mom, God. my mother came out of the house and she's screaming, go in and get her, get her. Cause, cause she couldn't, she couldn't go in and get me cause she didn't know how to swim either. And eventually my dad got in the water and pulled me out and I'm crying and choking. And, and my mom wrapped me up in the towel and my dad just looked at me with such disgust. I just remember this so clearly that I just, I was in trouble the whole rest of the day. I was in trouble for being a crybaby, for not learning, not figuring out how to swim in the pool and for making a scene. And that night at dinner, he didn't speak to me the whole evening. And it was just the most awful traumatic thing. And of course, when you're seven and you're going through it, you don't realize any of this. You just, it, it's so confusing, but well, unfortunately, you did realize how traumatic it was because you couldn't have had a more, I can't imagine a more traumatic experience uh, that's coupled with you know, the, the possibility of dying, of drowning with the, the, the fact that your parent actually caused it is kind right. of a, uh, kind of a perfective uh, of uh, horror. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I never wanted, I just, ever since then, I, I didn't feel comfortable in the water. It scared me. I didn't want to be near it. If I was at the beach, I would barely put my feet in the water. Um, even growing up as I got older, you know, I would wash my hair in the shower, but never my face. I would never want all of the water to be in my face. I would wash my face prior to getting in the shower because I didn't want to be that submerged in water. Wow. And so I decided that I needed to face that fear and I wanted to learn how to swim. So I hired an instructor that taught children. So his, his school was, his pool was this very shallow three or four foot pool. The water was always 90 degrees and he was the most gentle, sweetest man because he taught children. So he had that nature of patience. 
and he took me on as a special case. And so I went for my first lesson and I was late to my lesson because I was afraid to get out of the car. And then even before I got in the water, I was in the, in the changing room, putting on my swimsuit and just crying. I was so scared. And it was just this little three foot pool. And I was, <laughs> I remember getting in the water and then him asking me, like teaching me to float on that float on that first lesson on my stomach. And that meant me having to put my face in the water and I was just crying. And I was so glad that I was wet with water because maybe he couldn't see my tears, but I think he very clearly knew what was going on with me because he was so patient and so sweet. And he took me through several different lessons to get me just basically just get me comfortable in the water to where if I'm in the water, I know how to float. I know how to do some basic strokes and to know that I have that capability to not drowned in a situation if I get put in water and where I don't freak out because that's where I, w I would freak out when I was in water and I would forget everything. So he got me to the point where I can be in water, I'm comfortable, I can swim a lap across the pool and it's, it was just amazing. The transformation in those few lessons was amazing. Did you share with him what happened to you when you were younger or no? I think I may have very briefly because he knew that I was afraid of the water. And I think I probably did tell him that I had a traumatic experience when I was younger and that he was patient with that. Yes. Now thinking back, yes, I did tell him because he was really great and he understood my fear. So he teaches children who have no fear. These, I watch videos of these kids that go to his school and they're um, anywhere between, you know, babies and toddlers where he's teaching them the survival skill. If they fall in water, how to turn over on their back and how to float. Right. And, these kids are fearless. And I remember telling him, I wish I could be that age again and be fearless because now I have 40 years of trauma and fear in me that I need to get rid of. So he really helped me with that. It was a, that month was just mind blowing to me. And that so, was early on in my 12 months. So I think that gave me the confidence to realize if I could do this, I could do anything. Just looking at the list, I wouldn't have thought, you know, not before I knew any of your history, that that would have been that big a deal. You just never learned to swim. But, you know, hearing your story and you put that at the, the second month, that was a big, big thing. It boosted my confidence a lot to know that I'm so much more capable of what I give myself credit for. So at the end of the month, what would you say your, your level of fear jumping in the water and swimming was at the end of the month? I would say prior, I, my fear was at a 10. Out of 10, it was a 10. Um, at the end of the month, at the end of the month, it might have been maybe a four. It, until I developed stronger swimming skills, I think the fear is always going to be there a little bit. But it was, I was definitely at the point where I could get in the water. I felt comfortable. I felt okay being under the water. It didn't scare me because I, I understood that it was all within my control. He taught me a lot. My instructor taught me a lot of techniques on how to calm down when I was in the water and how to breathe and how to float. And strangely enough, I didn't realize this was going to be a side effect of it. But when I was floating in the water, it relieved so much tension in my body. You can't float and be all tensed up at the same time. You, you just can't. You physically can't. So right. I had to, had to learn how to let go and how to relax my body and how to give into the moment. And that in itself taught me so much. So you've never been in a flotation tank 
I presume. No, no, no. I'm open to it, though. I'm interested. Because that would be awesome. And I'm just thinking that with regard to what else would help beyond the swimming lessons, there's still an emotional component to work with could lessen the fear even more that has nothing to do with being in the pool. You've shown you can be in the pool and swim, but you still have a history of, a, of that's, that's never going to go away entirely, but there's probably emotional things to do, you know, EFT techniques or something that uh, can yeah. help with that as well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. To know that I'm safe. I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. I just need, I would, in the first few lessons, I would just need to keep reminding myself, no, we practiced this. We, I know what I'm doing. He taught me. This is what, just to get out of your own head. When I would start to overthink it, then my technique would start to mess up and I would start to sink a little bit. It was getting out of my own head to, like you said, know all of those little tips and tricks on how to get over your fear because it's somewhat always still there. Yeah, we never, th those things never leave. The, the things we've encountered before, the things we're afraid of, they always come back to one extent or another, but the question is, are they more manageable? And are you able to enjoy life more and do things that you want to do versus being paralyzed? Mm -hmm. Yeah, idea. learning, right, learning how to not be triggered, or if you are triggered, recognizing it and knowing how to get over it quickly, very quickly. So in May, you tackled being vulnerable and accepting no. <laughs> oh, that was a fun month. <laughs> Oh gosh. I, yes, because I, I was living so much in the need to have approval from other people and always wanting, you know, every, always wanting to be liked and needing to know that um, everyone approved of me. And if somebody told me no, like, really, what do you mean? No, no that's not, that word's not on my radar. <laughs> so I thought a lot about how I could get how I could put myself every day in a vulnerable position to kind of, uh, kind of like exposure therapy so that if I heard no enough that I, I know it's not personal cause I would take no very personally. And you know, at the end of the day, it's not, not half the things, more than half the things that happened in your day have nothing to do with you or about you. You know, everybody's got their own agenda and reason for doing things. And I needed to just put myself in that scenario to hear no more often. So I would, kind of start to take things, um, take my ego out of it. And so I decided that I was going to approach someone every day and ask if I could take a selfie with them. So I would just walk up to a stranger and ask, there would be no icebreaker. There'd be no, Oh, hi, how are you doing? How's your day going? And then, Oh, by the way, can I take a picture with you? Because I didn't want I didn't want them to feel comfortable with me enough to go, Oh, she's nice. Um, sure. I'll take a picture. I wanted to just be straight up, hi, can you take a picture with me? Because I figured that would get me the most no's, right? And of course it did. People looked at me like I was crazy. People would look at me and walk away or not answer or um, roll their eyes or whatever. But Daniel, what I learned in that month of doing that, that not, it wasn't only so much my fear of hearing no, it was my fear of being vulnerable and just walking up to people in general. There just, just walk. Oh gosh. There was one day I was in my car. It was the end of the day. It was dark. I had just finished the supermarket and I knew I was getting in my car and driving home. And once I got home, that was it. I wasn't going anywhere else. I wasn't going to see anybody. And I said, Sheila, you didn't ask anybody to take a picture with you today. You committed to do this every day for 30 days. 
and get out of the car and go walk up to somebody. It took me maybe 20 minutes to get the courage to get out of the car. And then it took me another 10 minutes of standing in front of the supermarket that I just came out of to approach someone. And finally, I went, a man had walked up and I said, hi, excuse me, can I take a picture with you? And he looked at me and he said, that's weird. And then there's this, then there's this awkwardness, right? And he said, why? And I promised myself I wasn't going to explain either because if I explained, then people would say, oh, sure, of course. So I promised just to keep it really awkward. And so when he asked why, I just smiled at him and I said, yes, no. And he goes, all right. And he was this grumpiest old man. But as soon as I got around him and put the camera in front of us, he got this huge smile on his face and I got this huge smile on my face and I took the picture and I said, okay, thank you so much. And I walked away and he looked at me like I was from another planet and he went in the grocery store and shook his head. <laughs> so you know, it was, I, I'm actually surprised though that you didn't have most people say yes. If I could no, see you walking, so, walking up to somebody with your smile on your face, maybe you, maybe you tried to frown, I don't know, but I would, <laughs> I, I would think that most people would have said yes to you. But uh, Gosh, I only got seven yeses out of the whole month, but it, it got me to realize that people are just people. I don't have to, it, everyone is just going about their day being human. And if they say no, they say no. And a lot of people, when I asked, would, I started to notice behavior in people that one woman, she looked at me and then she kind of touched her hair and her, her clothes and then said no. And it was because it wasn't about me. It was about her. She didn't Absolutely. feel good about herself in that moment. And who am I, this weird chick asking for a picture? Heck no, go away, lady. So it didn't, it, it really taught me a lot about people that month and about myself. Like why, why am I afraid to approach someone? If we see everyone is the same, that person's no better than me. I'm no better than them. Why can't we all just, just be who we are and, and love one another? I don't know. I just there felt you like, go. you know, <laughs> so let me ask you this, Sheila, what would be the, before you started this, what was the type of no that you most dreaded or didn't want to get? I think I was internalizing any no as a form of rejection and as a form of, of a personal attack on me and who I am. So gosh, somebody, whether said, be, somebody said no to you as an indicator of your self-worth, you obviously yes. you no, know you're not, you're not worth saying yes to. Yes. Kind of yes. Yeah. yeah. So it didn't matter what the question was that I was receiving a no to, whether it be, Hey, can I share this table with you at a busy restaurant? Or can I take a picture with you? Or will you go out on a date with me? Whatever level of, of, the question was a no just meant I'm, I'm still worthless. I'm not worthy of acceptance or anything. And the other side, the being vulnerable, I mean, obviously take getting, take being willing to accept those is, is a form of being vulnerable. Were there other ways that you made yourself more vulnerable in this month? Well, when someone did say yes and we took a picture it would lead to small talk. And then that meant me opening up a part of myself to a stranger as well. And that took vulnerability. Okay. Yeah. So you told them why you were doing it then afterwards? Yes. yes. Told them, told them why. And then we would chat about it. And then of course that would lead to the conversation of um, just this personal journey I was on. And that, that took courage to do that because 
was uh, hard for me to admit I'm working on me, that I'm a little messed up and I'm, <laughs> I'm, trying, to, <laughs> I'm trying to work on it. So that, was, that took vulnerability too. What else did you not want people to know about you? Hmm. In that month, what, I, what did I not want people to know? Is that your question? Or just in general, in terms of the message you got, if you had to, to dissect what you thought was wrong with you, you know, what was why you weren't worthy, how would you have explained that? It's maybe not a, I, fair, maybe not a fair question because it's an emotional thing. Um, challenging to just put yourself out there. It's what you're doing in this podcast, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> just having this conversation with you is somewhat intimidating in itself because I don't talk about my divorce a lot to anybody. And, and, I, and I think that comes from uh, past shame and failure around not having it work out. So a lot of times um, at my age, it's, it's, it's more uncommon for women my age, I think, to be single. So when people ask or when people hear that I'm single and then they ask, oh, were you married before? And I say yes, then that leads down the conversation of, oh, why didn't it work out? Or how long were you married? And it's an awkward conversation for me because I still have a little bit of shame around the failure of my marriage. But the more I learn about myself and why it didn't work out, it's just, it actually just starts to become a more powerful tool as to where I'm going in the future. So would you like to get let go of that little bit of shame about the marriage not working out right now? Yes, I would. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, I think that we're just all doing the best that we can with what we know at the time. And I was still such a scared little girl inside throughout a lot of my marriage. And I didn't have any idea how to work on me and did a lot of blaming of my partner. And there was a lot of resentment in our relationship. And I think that understanding my role in how, in, in the why and how it ended has helped me understand the bigger picture of, just me and the relationship in general and is and and to allow myself grace to to let it go <sighs> so is it gone the shame yeah i feel better grace grace is the key word because you said it in, initially and i just i'll put my coaching hat on just for a second if i have your permission of Sheila. course yes uh everybody does the best they can and that standard of of perfection that idea that um that the marriage is supposed to be forever and just like you said when we initially started talking i thought it was you know it was, it, my idea was going to be forever nobody can say this is how i'm going to feel forever for the next 100 years nobody can say that things aren't going to change people grow people grow together, they grow apart. And even with the best of intentions or the best of skills, um, relationships end when they don't serve the people that are in the relationship. You know, you can, you can make it go on a lot longer 
and a lot of people do make it go on a lot longer. That doesn't mean they made the right decision, though. Mm-hmm. So exactly. This, so this whole idea, and you compound that, that we weren't schooled or educated in terms of how to have a healthy relationship. You didn't have a role model of a healthy relationship growing up. To even, even expect that you'd have a clue about how to have a healthy relationship when you had role models that were the opposite is I think is a bit uh, unreasonable and unfair to yourself. Yeah. Yep. I agree. And it's not like you're, it's not like you're the only one that says, Oh, my marriage didn't last forever. You know, that's just to join the rest of the world. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Just reflecting on all of the reasons, like my husband and I were so disconnected in our marriage and we had such different goals for our lives that there was no way we could have continued forever because you're either growing together or you grow apart. And we were, year after year growing apart. And I don't know why I held on so long for something that was so broken. And, and when, you have the, when you have in your head the idea that you're supposed to make it work no matter what, right. uh, that's, that's a tough message. And again, I've worked with so many women that have exactly that message. It's my job to make it work no matter what, to hang in there for the family, for the children, because that's what I'm supposed to do. And, Sorry, that's really not your job to be uh, unhappy for the rest of your life, or unhappy for 25 years, or, or to put yourself last, you know, and, and to say that my happiness isn't important, I'll sacrifice, you know, even though that's what your mother did. That's exactly what she did. And as we're talking, I'm just even more realizing how much I was just repeating the pattern of my parents. My mother was so unhappy. And they, you know, they, they were married for 30 some years. My mother was so unhappy. And, and I, I guess I just figured when you get married, that's how, that's it. You're married, you make it work or, or not, but you stay together. And so the, how I saw my marriage ending as a failure took a lot of work to understand that it was just that moment in my life and how I can use it to just be better today just it's all about perspective and you're a different person because of that relationship and that relationship did help you at the time to get yeah. through a difficult point in your your life and you yeah. got to look you got to look at it positively and uh, and then move on yeah i kind of i kind of think that the greatest gift that my ex-husband ever gave me was our divorce because i wouldn't have left he's the one that walked out he's the one that said we're done this is it. I'm done. And I didn't have the courage to, and him doing that was the greatest gift he could have ever given me because it put me on this trajectory to be where I am today. And, yeah. and I feel I, and I am a completely different person today, completely. Like if somebody, if, if somebody who knew me then were to meet me again today, they wouldn't recognize me. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. And you know, I think there are many, many women on the podcast that will benefit from hearing what exactly what happened to you and what, what you're able to do and to give them some hope because. Yeah. I think that during the whole time that I was married, I suffered from depression on and off and anxiety. And I was so focused on control and security and power 
and worthiness because those are things that I felt like I was lacking. So I clung on to it so much. And of course, all of those things just set you up to be a super rigid person who is anxious and, you know, all of those things. And, and since the end of the marriage and just really rediscovering who I am and who I want to be, like my, my values in, in themselves have completely changed, completely, 180. Yeah. And, you know, as we move into uh, the letting of control month that I want to hear about, because they're all kind of tied, everything is all kind of tied together. But uh, uh, one of the little phrases I use uh, for for some people that like to uh, control, think they can control everything, is that hey, the, the universe has called. They got your application, and <laughs> and you're not getting the job. <laughs> you're not getting the job of running the universe and controlling everyone and telling everybody what to do. You're you're not you're not being hired. <laughs> Yeah, my need for control was so deep rooted where I I had to be in charge. I needed things to go my way. Everything had to be in order. Things needed to be perfect. Like are you getting yeah. anxiety just listening to that? I mean cuz I get anxiety when I think about it because that and I lived every day like that because I felt like my entire life was out of control and I needed to somehow rein it all in and you can't you can't you're setting yourself up for disappointment and failure and you're making everyone miserable around you well but let's take let, let's take a second and give some compassion towards sheila because because it's, it's worth just stopping right here because when you are unsafe when you have learned a life of uh, where things nothing is safe nothing is assured then that's exactly what you do is try and control the, everything, the things you can control and have this idea that you can go beyond that and control other people. And, and, and so common because that's the only, it's kind of a lifeline. It's the only lifeline you have, but you know, in the end, you know, it's, it, it's never going to work, but it can only be replaced by uh, the work you've done on yourself by having faith, and trust. See, if you don't think things are going to work out, if your experience has always been, nothing is going to work out. I'm never going to be happy. I'm never going to be treated the way I deserve to be treated. Then, you know, what else are you going to do but try and control everything to have some semblance of control of something because you have no control over anything else? Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. Exactly. Yeah. It was very stressful. So tell us about the month of August where you're letting go Ooh. of control. How did you do that? <laughs> I decided to go on a trip to Europe with a friend of mine. And I decided to let him plan everything, which for me was just off the charts out of my wheelhouse because, you know, we, we just talked about my need for my, my then need of control and needing everything to be planned and perfect. But my friend was going on a trip to Europe for a friend's wedding and he mentioned it to me and I said, Oh, that's, that's cool. I've never been to Europe. I'd love to go. And he said, well, why don't you come along with me? So it was very spontaneous, very sporadic. And I decided that I was going to allow him to take charge of the vacation. And we were gone for 10 days in Europe and he pretty much planned everything. 
And on top of that, for half of the trip, we made, we intentionally decided to not make plans. So all we had was our Eurail ticket and a destination. And on top of all that, he said, look, Sheila, you're, and when we do the other half of the Europe trip on the Eurail, he's like, I'm not lugging your suitcase around for you. You need to put out, you need to backpack it. And all of these things had my red flag radar going off. Like, wait, I can't bring 10 suitcases. I can't plan every moment of every day. And we have no idea where we're going for six days of our trip. And he was, my friend is so, so, so sweet. He's like, I'm going to, he's like, this is going to be your best month ever. I'm going to help you get over your need for control. And he was just so supportive in everything. And we did the trip and I lived out of a backpack for six days and went with, just tried to really go with the flow and be in the moment of the trip. And it was the best experience of my life. Like seriously, it was amazing. How long did it take you to become somewhat comfortable with letting go? Well, leading up to the trip, he and I would talk on the phone every day. And it, um, because I'm a full-time student, it was in the summer, so I was on break. So I didn't have a job to go to every day. I didn't have homework to do every day. So I had a lot of free time, and as did he. So we had time every day to talk. Sometimes we would talk for hours, and he would just help me through, like, well, what is your fear? What, are you, what do you think is going to happen if you consolidate into one little bag? He's like, so you wear the same pants three times in a row. I don't care. He's like, I, I think my, a lot of my issue was self-consciousness as well. If I don't have all of my toiletries, if I don't have my uh -huh. bag full of my bouginess, like, you know, what are people going to think of me? And he just continued to talk me down off the ladder for every time I'd have a concern, he would talk me down. And he spent a month prior to our trip doing this with me. So by the time we got there, I felt really comfortable in who I was and who I was to him in order to just let go. Like, okay, you're going to see me without makeup. You're going to see me um, looking my absolute worst. You're going to see me with the shower cap on my head in the morning. Like these are all my worst nightmares <laughs> for um, a man that I don't know very well to be seeing me in that light. But yeah. he, he was, he was just so supportive and, and so understanding and, and wanting to help me. And we've just been the best friends ever since. And it was a really huge growth and learning experience for me. So when you got on the plane to leave and you had all these concerns addressed, were you still desirous of maintaining control? Had you relaxed? When did you actually relax about all this? <laughs> um, maybe around day three when okay. I, uh, the old me was still trying to creep in and he, and he was pushing back and he was like, you don't, um, you don't need that. You don't throw that away. This is going to be weight in your backpack for the second half of the trip. And what are all these papers? We've already, these, you don't need to save your stub from the airline. We've already taken the flight, throw it away. Like he was just <laughs> really helping me just let go of stuff. And, and I will tell you things happened. I lost my year rail tickets. I had to go get them replaced. We had to wait in a very long, unexpected line. Um, we, our rental car got damaged. We had to deal with that. So there all, a lot of things happened along the way as well. And it was 
so amazing how we handled it together as a traveling duo where we just finally felt so comfortable in living in the moment and letting go of control that when things happen, we're like, Oh yeah, that kind of sucks. Well, let's figure it out. What are we going to do? It didn't derail our day. It didn't put a damper on the trip. And as things happened, we just dealt with it because we were in such a, such a joyous mode on that trip of just enjoying each other's company and enjoying um, being on vacation and just being in these beautiful European cities. And it just was, a, it's, it's like a trip that I've never had in my entire life. It's what I strive to in the future now when I go on vacation and when I plan trips. So when you got home, did it change how you lived in your everyday world? How did it change your need for control once you get back from Europe? Yeah, it, it just made me see things from a different perspective. Like, does this really matter? At the end of the day, does anyone care about this but me? Who am I killing myself to have my house spotless for all the time? I live alone. My dog doesn't care if the dishes are done. If I'm tired and the dishes don't get done, they don't get done. So it's just a lot of um, giving myself permission to relax and be easier on myself. How does that feel? Fabulous. Oh my goodness. It's wonderful. <laughs> it feels really good. The last trip I went on, I actually only took a carry-on where normally I would take two, three suitcases and my whole life with me. And I was packing for a, a little trip I went on and I kept hearing my friend's voice in my head going, you don't need that. You don't need that. You don't need that. And I ended up going on a trip with nothing but a carry-on. It was liberating. Yeah. And if I was going to be really vulnerable myself, I'd tell you I have real bad issues with overpacking myself. <laughs> yeah. Cause I feel like I need to, I felt, I felt in the past, like I need to have everything with me. It gives me the security. It gives me the comfort to know if I pack that one outfit and I don't feel like wearing it that day. Oh, I got 10 more in my bag, <laughs> but I think there's a happy medium. There's gotta be a happy medium. Yeah. I have, I haven't found it yet. Uh, Cause I, <laughs> I overpack and then uh, two thirds of what I pack, I never wear. Exactly. Yes. Yep. Maybe, maybe next lifetime I'll figure that out. <laughs> um, so if we could, if we could, Sheila, summarize um, what the year did for you um, in terms of your overall outlook on yourself and how you feel about yourself. Um, talk about uh, talk about the change that, that cumulatively it had. Now, what, uh, tell everybody when this, uh, how long ago did you complete the, the one year challenge? I completed it in August of 2019. So last summer, that, that trip to Europe and letting go of control was my last official so about, about six challenge. months ago then. Yeah. And that's not to say I still don't do stuff constantly in my everyday life to get me out of my comfort zone and to help me grow who I am as a yeah. person. But my official like year long journey came to an end last summer. Yeah. So how would you explain the, uh, the change in yourself in terms of who you are as a person now after doing that one month uh, at a time for an entire year? And again, that's a lot of diligence to go through that uh, day after day. You know, anybody can do something a couple of times or for uh, you know, a short period of time, but to be able to, to lay this out 
And I encourage, and I will, will in the show notes, we'll leave the uh, 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 the URL for uh, for breaking up with your comfort zone. And then we'll talk about your podcast as well. We haven't gotten mm-hmm. to that yet. Uh, but how would you describe how it changed you? Was it how worthwhile was it to do it? I feel like a completely different person. It taught me that I am so much more capable of anything I set my mind to than I ever believed possible. It's given me courage that I never knew that I could have because each time I did a challenge, each time I got uncomfortable and, and stepped into my courage, it built my confidence. So I'm more courageous. I'm more confident in my everyday life that I know that if I want to achieve something that it's in within my power to make it happen that I don't need to wait for somebody else's permission. I don't need to wait for someone else's approval. If something speaks to my heart, I'm fully capable of making it happen. So it's just completely boosted my confidence in myself. And it's, it actually, it allowed me to really remove my ego from a lot of situations as well. Because being vulnerable and working on yourself means that you have to take yourself down quite a few pegs to get real with yourself. And it's yeah, and you know when you when you need other people's approval, when you need other people to uh, say yes to you, then you're a slave to those other people. Once you decide that you don't have control over what they do, what they say, what they think, and it's really none of your business what they think of you, it really frees you up to be who you want to be. Because what what I realized the most is what I think of me. Yes. And that's what I discovered in that year is who I am and what I'm capable of and what I think of me. Cause that's what matters at the end of the day. Cause you're the one that has to take you everywhere you go. So what do you think of you? I'm pretty fucking awesome to be honest with you. <laughs> no, I have to put I, the check. I have to put the check mark that we have. We I have strong I'm, language. I'm pretty darn awesome. <laughs> it's already out there. I agree, Sheila. It is really, it is really fucking awesome what you've, what I, you've accomplished. Thank you. I am just so truly happy every day. And I've learned how to take things as they come. And when a day is hard and when there's challenges, I approach them from such a different angle now. And being able to lead with my heart instead of my head. And it's just, it's just changed everything. Again, there's so many people that are, that are floundering that are stuck because these things you've done. Uh, and again, in, in, a, in a short podcast, we can, capsule, we can encapsulate it, but you know, it took lots of lessons, lots of work, lots of introspection that uh, was, very i'm sure very uncomfortable and again the title mm-hmm. of your of your of your uh, website breaking up with your comfort zone is uh is putting it mildly because a lot of these things are are profoundly uncomfortable and again i find it with you know in, in the coaching realm in terms of people that i work with that everybody says they want to grow Everybody says that they want to change, but when it comes right down to it, um, most people don't have 
the courage or not ready. And uh, so there's nobody else that can give you the courage, nobody else that can give you the incentive to get ready to do those things. And I just have to applaud you for uh, your backbone, your bravery and your courage to go forward and say, I'm going to uh, go after what I want. I'm going to take the lessons. I'm taking, taking the things that happened to me and, and go forward, not as a victim uh, at all, because there's not a hint of victimhood in anything you've done. Uh, a hint of uh, feeling sorry for yourself. There's none at all. So that example of saying this is this is what I've got. This this is the cards that I uh, had been dealt, and uh, I'm going to reshuffle the deck uh, because I can. Because that's the right. message I hope that everybody gets is you can reshuffle the deck, and nobody said it's fucking easy. Right. <laughs> yep. Change takes time. You just have to be dedicated to yourself and your why. Your why has to be big enough. And then the and, how comes easy. And what was your why? What was my why? My why was to eliminate my limiting beliefs. But why? So that I could stop living in fear. So because I why? Because it was killing me. Honestly, I don't mean that lightly. It was killing me. I was very depressed and I was suicidal. And all of my limiting beliefs and all of these labels that I had put upon me and that I'd put upon myself and all of these things that I thought about myself were creating a very, very dark place in my life. And I needed to dig myself out. And if I can give you the other why, because underneath the real authentic person underneath the, the, the trauma, underneath the hurt, is a beautiful person that knows how to have fun, knows how to connect with people, knows how to uh, raise a child, and knows how to contribute and make connections throughout the world, which is what the world needs. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty big why to uh, self-actualize uh, what you have to offer. Thank you. I feel like Good I'm job. finally live. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for allowing me to share my story. I feel like I'm finally living my true self and what's in my heart and it feels great. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for being on the podcast, Sheila. God bless you. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening to this is personal rewinding a life. If you like today's show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with your friends. All of that would be greatly appreciated. You can find me at dansimon.co, on Instagram, dansimontv, or Twitter, at dansimontv. Thanks for listening to the show today. New show will be out on Monday. Have a great week.